Section 7. The Atomic Bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. THE ATOMIC BOMBINGS OF HIROSHIMA AND NAGASAKI BY THE MANHATTAN ENGINEER DISTRICT, JUNE 29, 1946 SECTION 7 PART 1 OF AN EYEWITNESS ACCOUNT HIROSHIMA, AUGUST 6, 1945 BY FATHER JOHN A. SEAMS, PROFESSOR OF MODERN PHILOSOPHY AT TOKYO'S CATHOLIC UNIVERSITY up to August 6th, occasional bombs, which did no great damage, had fallen on Hiroshima. Many cities round about, one after the other, were destroyed. But Hiroshima itself remained protected. There were almost daily observation planes over the city, but none of them dropped a bomb. The citizens wondered why they alone had remained undisturbed for so long a time. There were fantastic rumors that the enemy had something special in mind for this city, but no one dreamed that the end would come in such a fashion as on the morning of August 6th. August 6th began in a bright, clear summer morning. About seven o'clock there was an air raid alarm, which we had heard almost every day, and a few planes appeared over the city. No one paid any attention and at about eight o'clock the all-clear was sounded. I am sitting in my room at the novitiate of the Society of Jesus in Nagatsuke. During the past half-year, the philosophical and theological section of our mission had been evacuated to this place from Tokyo. The novitiate is situated approximately two kilometers from Hiroshima, halfway up the sides of a broad valley which stretches from the town at sea level into this mountainous hinterland, and through which courses a river. From my window I have a wonderful view down the valley to the edge of the city. Suddenly, the time is approximately 8.14, the whole valley is filled by a garish light which resembles the magnesium light used in photography and I am conscious of a wave of heat. I jump to the window to find out the cause of this remarkable phenomenon, but I see nothing more than that brilliant yellow light. As I make for the door, it doesn't occur to me that the light might have something to do with enemy planes. On the way from the window, I hear a moderately loud explosion, which seems to come from a distance, and... At the same time, the windows are broken in with a loud crash. There has been an interval of perhaps ten seconds since the flash of light. I am sprayed by fragments of glass. The entire window frame has been forced into the room. I realize now that a bomb has burst, and I am under the impression that it exploded directly over our house or in the immediate vicinity. I am bleeding from cuts about the hands and head. I attempt to get out of the door. It has been forced outwards by the air pressure and has become jammed. 
I force an opening in the door by means of repeated blows with my hands and feet, and come to a broad hallway from which open the various rooms. Everything is in a state of confusion. All the windows are broken and all the doors forced inwards. The bookshelves in the hallway have tumbled down. I do not note a second explosion, and the flyers seem to have gone on. Most of my colleagues have been injured by fragments of glass. A few are bleeding, but none has been seriously injured. All of us have been fortunate, since it is now apparent that the wall of my room, opposite the window, has been lacerated by long fragments of glass. We proceed to the front of the house to see where the bomb has landed. There is no evidence, however, of a bomb crater, but the southeast section of the house is very severely damaged. Not a door nor a window remains. The blast of air had penetrated the entire house from the southeast, but the house still stands. It is constructed in a Japanese style with a wooden framework, but has been greatly strengthened by the labor of our brother Groper, as is frequently done in Japanese homes. Only along the front of the chapel, which adjoins the house, three supports have given way. It has been made in the manner of Japanese temple, entirely out of wood. Down in the valley, perhaps one kilometer toward the city from us, several peasant homes are on fire, and the woods on the opposite side of the valley are aflame. A few of us go over to help control the flames. While we are attempting to put things in order, a storm comes up, and it begins to rain. Over the city clouds of smoke are rising, and I hear a few slight explosions. I come to the conclusion that an incendiary bomb with an especially strong explosive action has gone off down in the valley. A few of us saw three planes at great altitude over the city at the time of the explosion. I, myself, saw no aircraft whatsoever. Perhaps a half hour after the explosion, a procession of people begins to stream up the valley from the city. The crowd thickens continuously. A few come up the road to our house. We give them first aid and bring them into the chapel, which we have in the meantime cleaned and cleared of wreckage, and put them to rest on the straw mats which constitute the floor of Japanese houses. A few display horrible wounds of the extremities and back, the small quantity of fat which we possessed during this time of war was soon used up in the care of the burns. Father Rector, who, before taking holy orders, had studied medicine, ministers to the injured, but our bandages and drugs are soon gone. We must be content with cleansing the wounds. More and more of the injured come to us. The least injured drag the more seriously wounded. There are wounded soldiers and mothers carrying burned children in their arms. From the houses of the farmers in the valley comes the word, Our houses are full of wounded and dying. Can you help, at least, by taking the worst cases? The wounded come from the sections at the edge of the city. They saw the bright light. Their houses collapsed, 
and buried the inmates in their rooms. Those that were in the open suffered instantaneous burns, particularly on the lightly clothed or unclothed parts of the body. Numerous fires sprang up which soon consumed the entire district. We now conclude that the epicenter of the explosion was at the edge of the city near the Jagagawa station, three kilometers away from us. We are concerned about Father Coop, who that same morning went to hold mass at the Sisters of the Poor, who have a home for children at the edge of the city. He had not returned as yet. Toward noon our large chapel and library are filled with the seriously injured. The procession of refugees from the city continues. Finally, about one o'clock, Father Coop returns, together with the sisters. Their house and the entire district where they live has burned to the ground. Father Coop is bleeding about the head and neck, and he has a large burn on the right palm. He was standing in front of the nunnery, ready to go home. All of a sudden he became aware of the light, felt the wave of heat, and a large blister formed on his hand. The windows were torn out by the blast. He thought that the bomb had fallen in his immediate vicinity. The nunnery, also a wooden structure made by our brother Groper, still remained, but soon, it is noted, that the house is as good as lost, because the fire, which had begun at many points in the neighborhood, sweeps closer and closer, and water is not available. There is still time to rescue certain things from the house and to bury them in an open spot. Then the house is swept by flame, and they fight their way back to us along the shore of the river and through the burning streets. Soon comes news that the entire city has been destroyed by the explosion and that it is on fire. What became of Father Superior and the three other fathers who were at the center of the city, at the central mission and parish house? We had up to this time not given them a thought, because we did not believe that the effects of the bomb encompassed the entire city. Also, we did not want to go into town except under pressure of dire necessity, because we thought that the population was greatly perturbed and that it might take revenge on any foreigners which they might consider spiteful onlookers of their misfortune, or even spies. Father Stolte and Father Erlinghagen go down to the road which is still full of refugees, and bring in the seriously injured who have sunken by the wayside, to the temporary aid station at the village school. There iodine is applied to the wounds, but they are left uncleansed. Neither ointments nor other therapeutic agents are available. Those that have been brought in are laid on the floor, and no one can give them any further care. What could one do when all means are lacking? Under these circumstances it is almost useless to bring them in. Among the passers-by there are many who are uninjured, in a purposeless, insensate manner, distraught by the magnitude of the disaster, most of them rush by, and none conceives the thought of organizing help on his own initiative. 
They are concerned only with the welfare of their own families. It became clear to us during these days that the Japanese displayed little initiative, preparedness, and organizational skill in preparation for catastrophes. They failed to carry out any rescue work when something could have been saved by a cooperative effort and fatalistically let the catastrophe take its course. When we urged them to take part in the rescue work, they did everything willingly, but on their own initiative they did very little. At about four o'clock in the afternoon, a theology student and two kindergarten children who lived at the parish house and adjoining buildings which had burned down, came in and said that Father Superior LaSalle and Father Schiffer had been seriously injured and that they had taken refuge in Asano Park on the river bank. It is obvious that we must bring them in, since they are too weak to come here on foot. Hurriedly, we get together two stretchers, and seven of us rush towards the city. Father Rector comes along with food and medicine. The closer we get to the city, the greater is the evidence of destruction, and the more difficult it is to make our way. The houses at the edge of the city are all severely damaged. Many have collapsed or burned down. Further in, almost all of the dwellings have been damaged by fire. Where the city stood, there is a gigantic, burned-out scar. We make our way along the street, on the river bank, among the burning and smoking ruins. Twice we are forced into the river itself by the heat and smoke at the level of the street. Frightfully burned people beckon to us. Along the way there are many dead and dying. On the Masasi Bridge, which leads into the inner city, we are met by a long procession of soldiers who have suffered burns. They drag themselves along with the help of staves, or are carried by their less severely injured comrades, an endless procession of the unfortunate. Abandoned on the bridge there stand, with sunken heads, a number of horses with large burns on their flanks. On the far side, the cement structure of the local hospital is the only building that remains standing. Its interior, however, has been burned out. It acts as a landmark to guide us on our way. Finally, we reach the entrance of the park. A large proportion of the populace has taken refuge there, but even the trees of the park are on fire in several places. Paths and bridges are blocked by the trunks of fallen trees and are almost impassable. We are told that a high wind, which may well have resulted from the heat of the burning city, has uprooted the large trees. It is now quite dark. Only the fires, which are still raging in some places at a distance, give out a little light. At the far corner of the park, on the river bank itself, we at last come upon our colleagues. Father Schiffer is on the ground, pale as a ghost. He has a deep incised wound behind the ear, and has lost so much blood that we are concerned about his chances for survival. The Father Superior has suffered a deep wound of the lower leg. 
Father Cieslik and Father Kleinsorge have minor injuries, but are completely exhausted. While they are eating the food that we have brought along, they tell us of their experiences. They were in their rooms at the parish house. It was a quarter after eight, exactly the time when we had heard the explosion in Nagatsuke. When came the intense light, and immediately thereafter the sound of breaking windows, walls, and furniture. They were showered with glass splinters and fragments of wreckage. Father Schiffer was buried beneath a portion of a wall, and suffered a severe head injury. The Father Superior received most of the splinters in his back and lower extremity, from which he bled copiously. Everything was thrown about in the rooms themselves, but the wooden framework of the house remained intact. The solidity of the structure, which was the work of Brother Groper, again shone forth. They had the same impression that we had in Nagatsuke, that the bomb had burst in their immediate vicinity. The church, school, and all buildings in the immediate vicinity collapsed at once. Beneath the ruins of the school, the children cried for help. They were freed with great effort. Several others were also rescued from the ruins of nearby dwellings. Even the Father Superior and Father Schiffer, despite their wounds, rendered aid to others, and lost a great deal of blood in the process. In the meantime, fires which had begun some distance away are raging even closer, so that it becomes obvious that everything would soon burn down. Several objects are rescued from the parish house and were buried in a clearing in front of the church, but certain valuables and necessities which had been kept ready in case of fire could not be found on account of the confusion which had been wrought. It is high time to flee, since the oncoming flames leave almost no way open. Fukai, the secretary of the mission, is completely out of his mind. He does not want to leave the house, and explains that he does not want to survive the destruction of his fatherland. He is completely uninjured. Father Kleinsorge drags him out of the house on his back, and he is forcefully carried away. Beneath the wreckage of the houses along the way, many have been trapped, and they scream to be rescued from the oncoming flames. They must be left to their fate. The way to the place in the city to which one desires to flee is no longer open, and one must make for Asano Park. Fukai does not want to go further, and remains behind. He has not been heard from since. In the park we take refuge on the bank of the river. A very violent whirlwind now begins to uproot large trees, and lifts them high into the air. As it reaches the water, a water-spout forms, which is approximately one hundred meters high. The violence of the storm, luckily, passes us by. Some distance away, however, where numerous refugees have taken shelter, many are blown into the river. Almost all who are in the vicinity have been injured and have lost relatives who have been pinned under the wreckage, or who have been 
lost sight of during the flight. There is no help for the wounded, and some die. No one pays any attention to a dead man lying nearby. The transportation of our own wounded is difficult. It is not possible to dress their wounds properly in the darkness, and they bleed again upon slight motion. As we carry them on the shaky litters in the dark over fallen trees of the park, they suffer unbearable pain as the result of the movement, and lose dangerously large quantities of blood. Our rescuing angel in this difficult situation is a Japanese Protestant pastor. He has brought up a boat and offers to take our wounded upstream to a place where progress is easier. First, we lower the litter containing Father Schiffer into the boat, and two of us accompany him. We plan to bring the boat back for the Father Superior. The boat returns about one half hour later, and the pastor requests that several of us help in the rescue of two children whom he had seen in the river. We rescue them. They have severe burns. Soon they suffer chills and die in the park. The Father Superior is conveyed in the boat in the same manner as Father Schiffer. The theology student and myself accompany him. Father Cheslik considers himself strong enough to make his way on foot to Nagatsuke with the rest of us, but Father Kleinsorge cannot walk so far, and we leave him behind, and promise to come for him and the housekeeper tomorrow. From the other side of the stream comes the whinny of horses who are threatened by the fire. We land on a sand spit which juts out from the shore. It is full of wounded who have taken refuge there. They scream for aid, for they are afraid of drowning, as the river may rise with the sea and cover the sand spit. They themselves are too weak to move. However, we must press on, and finally we reach the spot where the group containing Father Schiffer is waiting. Here a rescue party has brought a large case of fresh rice cakes, but there is no one to distribute them to the numerous wounded that lie all about. We distribute them to those that are nearby, and also help ourselves. The wounded call for water, and we come to the aid of a few. Cries for help are heard from a distance, but we cannot approach the ruins from which they come. A group of soldiers comes along the road, and their officer notices that we speak a strange language. He at once draws his sword, screamingly demands who we are, and threatens to cut us down. Father Laures, Jr., seizes his arm and explains that we are German. We finally quiet him down. He thought that we might well be Americans who had parachuted down. Rumors of parachutists were being bandied about the city. The Father Superior, who was clothed only in a shirt and trousers, complains of feeling freezing cold, despite the warm summer night and the heat of the burning city. The one man among us who possesses a coat gives it to him, and, in addition, I give him my own shirt. To me it seems 
more comfortable to be without a shirt in the heat. In the meantime, it has become midnight, since there are not enough of us to man both litters with four strong bearers, we determined to remove Father Schiffer first to the outskirts of the city. From there, another group of bearers is to take over to Nagatsuke. The others are to turn back in order to rescue the Father Superior. I am one of the bearers. The theology student goes in front to warn us of the numerous wires, beams, and fragments of ruins which block the way, and which are impossible to see in the dark. Despite all precautions, our progress is stumbling, and our feet get tangled in the wire. Father Kruer falls, and carries the litter with him. Father Schiffer becomes half unconscious from the fall, and vomits. We pass an injured man who sits all alone among the hot ruins, and whom I had seen previously on the way down. On the Masasa Bridge we meet Father Tape and Father Loomer, who have come to meet us from Nagatsuke. They had dug a family out of the ruins of their collapsed house some fifty meters off the road. The father of the family was already dead. They had dragged out two girls and placed them by the side of the road. The mother was still trapped under some beams. They had planned to complete the rescue, and then to press on to meet us. At the outskirts of the city, we put down the litter, and leave two men to wait, until those who are to come from Nagatsuke appear. The rest of us turn back to fetch the Father Superior. End of Section 7 Part 1 of an Eyewitness Account From the Atomic Bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki